Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Ed Olson, co-founder and CEO, May Mobility. On today's episode, Ed and I discuss the future mobility in cities around the world and its impact on society. We hope you enjoy this episode. Ed, welcome to the podcast, sir. Hey, great to be here. We're super excited to have you here because you're old school. You've got an incredibly long track record in autonomous vehicles. You're doing great things with May. But before we get into the great things with May, I want to take, we're going to go on the way back machine here. How did you first become interested in autonomous vehicles? I got my start with robots in college. So I started taking a January, it's called an IAP robotics course. And uh, that really started a fascination with building robots that would figure out how to solve problems on their own. And uh, I was lucky enough to be at MIT during the DARPA Urban Challenge days. And that's when I sort of graduated to full-size cars and been chasing chasing autonomous cars ever since. Did you go out to Victorville as part of the Urban Challenge? I did, yes, uh, amidst the wildfires and the <laughs> which made for some pretty crazy photos. That's fantastic. What, what, so you're at MIT, an, an incredible institution of knowledge, incredible individuals that went there. What drew you to that, uh, that IAP class? Was it a professor? Was it a friend? Or was it just general curiosity? You know, I, I think I was, was in, I was always interested in programming. And uh, I started really my life as a computer scientist. <laughs> I started programming in, in uh, elementary school. And somewhere along the way, I got the idea that, hey, you know, these programs can be connected to the real world and move motors and turn servos. And that, for me, turned something that was kind of esoteric and abstract into something that was very tangible. Tangible. You move motors then, and today you're, you're moving individuals. You're moving them in nine cities you've had operations. Very, very impressive, incredible scale for a company of your size. What have you learned from those deployments? Well, I think one thing that we've learned is that autonomous cars are hard and every city brings new challenges for us to solve. I think part of the philosophy that I had is that by getting out into the real world, that that would actually be the best way to accelerate the progress of the technology. And I, and I say that having come from you know an academic background, spending a lot of time in a PhD program and then jumping into academia as a, as a professor, it would... You might think that you know I, I had a notion of going off into R and D mode and you know solve the problems in the abstract, spend lots of quality time with a whiteboard, and and yes, we do spend a lot of quality time with a whiteboard, but there's nothing quite so motivating as having a customer call you up and say, hey, why is the car doing this, and having that real world point of contact with with riders and with cities has been incredibly inspiring for our team as well. It helps us figure out where we should focus the technology, but we also get to meet the people who who ride our vehicles and, and get to benefit from the services that we're providing. So it's, it's both a source of focus and a source of inspiration. You said the line, every city brings new challenges. How do you overcome those challenges? Do you sit down with the, the local city government? Do you sit down with the community and say, we're gonna solve this problem? How does that work? I think we always start with what is the transportation problem, the real world problem that riders have that we want to solve, rather than approaching it from, hey, here's a, a chance for us to develop cool technology. And what I think that's really important because if you approach this from a perspective of you know collecting, collecting them all, right, all the robot challenges, all the things that an autonomous car can do, if you approach this from the perspective of we're going to collect them all, 
you're going to spend an awful long time in sort of R&D mode. And so for us, the excitement comes from speaking with riders, speaking with with the transportation officials who say, hey, hey, look, Ed, you know, here are a group of people who are trying to get from from here to over here. Maybe they're college students or maybe they are people who have been underserved by traditional public transit. And then then we go to work solving that problem. Okay, how do we get them from point A to point B to point C and back? And we design the routes. We try to figure out if there are intersections that are more challenging, can we go around them? And sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is we absolutely have to be able to, to you know, make this, this turn at this crazy intersection. And then that turns into a, a focused effort for our technology team. Following on that line of thinking, you're currently operating, say, in Arlington, Texas. What challenges are you solving? What benefits are you providing to the community there? Yeah, Arlington is a, is a great town. They have, uh, they they are quite a lot different from many other towns in that they don't have a traditional bus service. They have decided to to use on demand point to point service as the backbone of their public transportation infrastructure, and which is a really great way to decrease wait times and trip times for for riders, uh, which can otherwise be really challenging with a traditional bus service. But the problems that they have are are very familiar to us. The costs of drivers are very expensive, and they're worried about scalability, and they're worried about safety. And so working with Arlington has given us a chance to figure out how autonomous vehicles can fit into an infrastructure like that. And one of the things that's really great about it is, you know, it wasn't that long ago that everyone was talking about the, the, the future, where where autonomous vehicles would be integrated into more traditional services. And you pull out your phone and you type in where you're going. And if you're within the geofence of the autonomous vehicle, you get an AV. And if you're not, there's a traditional service as well. And that's live and operational in Arlington, Texas today, generating revenue, serving riders, and you know, getting, getting those riders to, to school on time, getting them to work, making a difference in their everyday life. On-demand point-to-point, we could both agree, is the future. You provide this immense service for the riders. They have smiles on their faces. Have they shared with you or your team any feedback of the positive impact that your services had on their lives? We get a lot of feedback, and we it, it's one of the most fun and rewarding parts of the job is to go and talk to riders and and to see the impact that we are we're having. Uh, we spoke to one rider who, uh, this was in Detroit, who spends over two hours a day on average getting to and from work, which is horrific. You think about the the cost to him. You know, he he could be clocking a couple extra hours, making a little more money, or or spending more time at home, you know, helping his kids study for the exam the next day, or or even catching a movie with the you know with with his wife. Right, everyone does deserve downtime, <laughs> and so this this huge tax on his life is something that we were able to meaningfully reduce. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that makes us know that we're on, on, onto something important. Related to that, you know, part of this is, is this transformation of transportation at a societal level. One of the, the quotes that I love is uh, from the for, former mayor of uh, Bogota, Colombia, Penalosa, and he said that 
a successful city is is not one where the poor drive to work. It's one where the rich use public transit. And I love that because I think it captures exactly the necessity of creating public transit that's incredibly high quality. If we approach public transit as building low-cost transportation solutions for the poor, what we're going to end up with is a system for the poor and a system for the rich. And the problem with that is that the transportation solutions that affluent people tend to, to fall back on when public transit is not very good tend to involve a lot of personal car ownership. And with that comes more traffic, more congestion, more pollution, and more real estate of a city allocated to roadway infrastructure, wider roads, and parking. And all of that, in turn, means that a city is a less beautiful and joyful place to live. You've got parking lots instead of more green space, parking lots instead of affordable housing, parking lots instead of cool restaurants and stores that people actually would love to go to. And so for me, the challenge is, can we build, can we help make public transit so good that it can serve everybody, absolutely everybody, from the poor to the disabled to the people who have been traditionally underserved, and yes, the affluent too, because we need to bring them in in order to make a system that serves everyone. Do you view May Mobility as complementing public transit so somebody gets off of a bus or gets off a rail, they can hop into a May vehicle to go the final distance to their either their job or a friend's house? Is that how you view that? Yeah, absolutely. And we are, are not anti-bus at all. If you it, When cities have a route that makes effective use of a bus, it's a beautiful thing. What an incredibly efficient service that can be. But the problem is that there are many places in the country where you don't have the ridership density to make bus buses efficient. Uh, you think about you know the sort of sort of uh, car dependent suburbs in you know, that that span over huge portions of the United States. In these places, there the population density is low enough that there is no route that a transportation planner can design that provides effective cost cost-effective and convenient service to the ridership. And so what you end up with are long, long routes with enormous headways, up to 90 minutes between bus service. And once you get on the bus, you might have a 40-minute drive to go just a handful of miles. That is the kind of service that no one who has other options is going to sign up for voluntarily. right? And so... The population, the low population density creates a very difficult public transportation problem, which oftentimes results in poor service. And the really terrible thing about this is that this is still consuming a huge amount of capital. Buses are incredibly expensive. They cost about half a million dollars to buy. They cost about half a million dollars a year to operate. And what you get from this huge capital expenditure in many places, is poor service. So our view is, hey, where you've got buses and they are performing well, great, keep the buses. But when you've got these lower demand density areas, you're really going to be better served by on-demand, point-to-point service. And those autonomous vehicles providing that point-to-point service can literally run circles around the buses that they would otherwise uh, be, be replacing. 
So we see that as a, as a really great way forward to address the problems that transportation planners are, are working really hard to solve. It's very important, but you give, you give freedom and convenience to that individual that needs to get to that location. And there's no, oh, I have to wait 40 minutes for the bus to go. You're giving them convenience. You're giving them time back, which is really, really impressive and something you should be proud of. But you're, you're not just giving it to the, the mobile individuals. The individuals that are, are in mobile might be in a wheelchair. For instance, you developed an, an ADA-compliant vehicle to a partnership with Braun Ability and the Toyota uh, Sienna minivans. I looked at the photos that you put on the May site. Really well designed. I like the design aspect of it because if I'm in that situation, oh, this is cool. I want to go for a ride. It's a, it's a sense of pride. Why does May have such a commitment to accessibility? Everyone deserves to be able to, to get where they need to go. You know, and I think many of us have people in our families who have encountered mobility challenges. Uh, you know, I, 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 I saw through my own eyes one of my parents as, as he uh, struggled with dementia, losing his independence, losing his ability to get around effectively. And the mobility challenges that he encountered there made his quality of life measurably worse. And, you know, that's ultimately many of us are on the path towards old age. <laughs> and I want, I want the world to be ready for us. And I want to extend the happy and productive lives of, of everyone that we can. And that creates value for, for not just those people, but their families and the community as a whole. Active, happy people are good for society. And even to the people who aren't the, the, the users of, who don't need the wheelchair accessible vehicles, having, getting everyone where they need to go serves everybody. You look at it from a public health standpoint, think about the, the mental health. They're not stressed out having to call a relative or call a friend to get there. They can open up the, the main mobility app and they can get there safely. That changes their lifestyle, changes their, their, their mental fortitude. I think there's a huge increase, improvement to the quality of life that we can achieve. And, you know, in, in Japan, we hear a variant of the same story. There they have a rapidly aging population. And the, the challenge there is is so acute that they actually don't have drivers. There aren't enough drivers to operate the buses to get people who live in more rural environments. And of course, when I say rural here, it's still pretty dense. <laughs> it's Japan. Uh, but they don't have the drivers to get people to the grocery store, to get them to the doctor's office. And as you said, there's a huge societal cost that comes along with that. So provide, making sure that these services exist is important to everyone, including the people who don't need those services yet or today, because they, they might need it in the future or they may have family members that need it. But the, the thing that makes this really exciting for me is that the, the proposition here is not that we should have a expensive, you know, massive cash losing business here, right? But we, there's a, a fantastically strong business opportunity to be had here. The, this, this transportation market that we're talking about is a trillion dollars. So the great thing about this is that we can have a, an enormous positive impact on the world and grow a strong company at the same time. And I think actually those are coupled. I think this is uh, an example where the best way to do good is by building a strong and robust company, by doing well. Bingo. 
you're generating revenue, you're building a business, you're not building a science project. And that's game changing because as you scale into more cities and you put more passenger vehicles, you have to generate revenue so you can pay your staff and you can expand. It's a business after all. So thank you for highlighting that. You're doing a lot. So you're running it properly as a business, but you're doing a lot of unique things. I mentioned the ADA, but I noticed when, and you go into the back of the Sienna minivan, traditionally your, your compute stack is in the trunk or in the back of the vehicle. The wheelchair goes there. How have you completely redesigned the interior of that Sienna minivan? Do you put the compute stack in the driver's seat? Where do you put it to? So that person goes there and doesn't feel like, Wah, wah, this is just a boring <laughs> Wow, this was really well designed. Well, you know, you don't wake up on day one having it all figured out. Our first vehicles put the compute stack in the trunk. It was a sort of natural place to put it, seemed sort of out of the way. And as we started looking more at accessibility in the Sienna platform, uh, sort of dawned on us that this was not going to work. And so our engineers, having having wrestled with this problem, uh, came up with a pretty interesting solution, which is to put the put the autonomy stack in the front seat, to put it in essentially where the front passenger seat would be. And so where that seat used to be, now there is a computing stack. Now, this is a different approach than a lot of AV companies have taken, uh, many of whom are putting the compute stack on the roof, uh, which, is, which is an okay place to do it. It also gets it out of the way uh, but our power consumption is lower, so we we don't have a massive heat problem. And by being able to put the compute stack inside, we save ourselves a lot of packaging problems, which in turn reduces the cost of the vehicle. Our power consumption is lower too, so we don't need the air conditioning or uh, additional cooling. And so all of this is designed around the unit economics of the vehicle. We need to make sure that these vehicles cost a very small amount to produce and that they don't have large ongoing service costs. And I think that's that's a, a balance that we've struck here. These vehicles are very easy to service because you don't have to dismantle the roof. You can just pop open the passenger door and there it is, there's all the equipment. So I'm gonna put on my Walt Disney hat when I come in. Do you have an animatronic that's your compute stack says, hello, sir, welcome, hello, ma'am, welcome aboard the vehicle today? <laughs> Sounds more like a Johnny cab. Uh <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> We don't. Uh, we, we don't. I think there's a really interesting question in here. Today, as you know, we, we use safety drivers in all of the cities in which we operate. Uh, we call them autonomous vehicle operators because, in fact, their role is only partially safety. Obviously, safety is, is the number one most important thing that they do. But they, they spend a lot more of their time as a... As a you know, concierge, as a, a, a coach, as a, you know, someone to help new riders understand how the technology works, to build a level of comfort. And one of the, the sort of interesting bits of feedback that we get is that our riders love the AVOs. They really build relationships with, the, with, with these safety drivers, and they really appreciate the, the attention and the ability for them to ask questions and get answers from a human being. Now, maybe this is because we are in a transitional phase, that AVs are new and people are filled with questions. But it is an interesting question that as we start to look to remove safety drivers, how do we, what, what, what do we need to replace that with? What is the experience that we want to provide to our riders when an empty metal box rolls up? We have to replace it with something, but what you're it might be Johnny Cab at one point, but with today you're building trust. 
your, your autonomous vehicle operators are sitting there talking to your passengers and they're building trust perhaps at some point. We don't need that. Perhaps your engineering team develops something, an augmented reality. We, we never know. For the individuals that have a vision impairment or a hearing impairment, have you put different elements inside the vehicle so they're, comf- they're comfort, they're not wondering, okay, what's going on? I don't really hear any noise. Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, so we have started this work. I think the biggest mistake you can make in, in the accessibility space is to assume that you know all the answers. And so we've really taken an a iterative approach of working with advocacy groups and with riders who, who, who have vision impairments and have mobility impairments. And we, our, our attitude is one that, hey, we're not perfect. We're not going to get this exactly right the first time. But let's work really closely together and constantly make the vehicle better and better. And so moving from our vehicles today, so the, the first vehicles that we made wheelchair accessible were these, these s- simpler, smaller vehicles that we used to operate. And those vehicles could fit a wheelchair, but actually the ramp angle wasn't quite right. Uh, it was difficult for a wheelchair to, to climb up that angle. So we make it better. And now the Sienna represents another iteration on how we can improve the accessibility story for, for wheelchair users, I think, and, and now reaching you know, ADA compliance with it. And we're expanding our reach here to not just people with mobility impairments, but vision and hearing impairments too. We, we've got a lot of work to do, and there's a lot of challenges for us to solve. But we will continue to take this iterative approach of building something, getting real feedback, getting criticism, praise when it's warranted, and then making the thing better. You're making it better and better. You have a really great partner in Toyota that makes the cars get better and better. The range gets longer and longer. Their hybrid technology. Shout out to Toyota and your hybrid technology. It's amazing. Keep investing in it. You're doing really great there. They've also invested in May. Could you talk about that partnership? Because it just seems to me that all it's it's two great companies coming together to do really good things. You know, I, I feel really fortunate to to be working with Toyota. I think it's arguably the the best OEM in the business, both in terms of scale. They they build more cars than Ford and GM put together, but also in terms of quality, and in in terms of optimization and cost. And these are really important things. We do not want to build. R&D prototypes that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. We want to build vehicles that we can build at massive scale because it's that massive scale which will lead to the kinds of city transformation that's that's the reason that may exists in the first place. But to, to back up a little bit, along my, my, my journey, I spent uh, some time working with Toyota as an employee. I was at Toyota Research Institute uh, where I was co-director of autonomous driving. And uh, we had three great offices across the Bay Area, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and in Boston, and built a, a, a strong relationship there. And when I decided to start May Mobility, we started talking to Toyota's venture arm. So Toyota AI Ventures, what they were called at the time. Today, it's just Toyota Ventures. And ultimately, Toyota Ventures came in and co-led our, uh, one of our, our early equity rounds. And that has grown into larger investments from Toyota Motor Corporation directly. And the relationship has grown beyond finance. So it started with capital, which is a really good thing for a startup, (laughs) awfully important. (laughs) But now we work with Toyota 
at a very detailed level on, on platforms, on the protocols, how does the autonomy software communicate to the vehicle? How does the redundancy work? How, how do we build this system in a way that uh, will meet safety requirements? How do we, and, and then thinking about how does this translate into what the ideal platform is? Where, how do the cabling harnesses need to be adjusted so that when we install a, a wheelchair ramp that we're not cutting through important bits and pieces? How do we design this whole thing for manufacturability so that when we start producing these by the thousands, that the design is still low cost, robust, easy to service, easy to manufacture? And we also work with Toyota on the go-to-market strategy. So Toyota has made a lot of uh, great introductions, including uh, to, to companies like Monet. Uh, so Monet is one of our go-to-market partners in Japan. They, 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 sell, they help us engage with communities and enterprises to deploy our fleets. And it's a joint venture between SoftBank and, and Toyota. Monet is a joint venture. And so our relationship with Toyota really covers the full spectrum of what an autonomous vehicle company needs to do. We also have a great pipeline. So the Sienna is not the last thing that we'll do either. And there's great new vehicles that are in the future that we're looking forward to bringing to market with our autonomy stack. And I think the, the, the amazing thing about this is that while the close relationship between Ford and Argo and GM and Cruz is sort of well known, we have this great relationship with Toyota. And I, I believe that the combination of May and Toyota is, is really going to be one for the industry to, to watch out for. A little birdie told me something, and I, and I will agree with you. And I think you're spot on with that when that next vehicle comes out. And today you also have the Lexus RX 450H that's running in Arlington. So you put the autonomy stack on the Sienna van, you put the autonomy stack on the Lexus. What does that look like from a configuration standpoint when your engineers are putting the LIDARs and all the, the compute in the car? Zooming out just a hair, the main mobility has gone through multiple transformations of how our autonomy kit interacts with the base vehicle over just the last couple of years. If you go back two years ago, May Mobility was building our, we were building our own drive-by-wire systems uh, for Polaris GEM platforms. So the great thing about this was that the, the system worked exactly the way we wanted it to. The bad thing about it is that we're an autonomous vehicle company, first and foremost. <laughs> and uh, you know we spent a lot of time installing air conditioners in these vehicles as well, on doing a lot of things that really aren't in our wheelhouse. The Lexus represented a massive transformation for the company, moving to a fully auto-grade street legal vehicle. And that was important because our autonomy capabilities had increased so much that we had really outgrown the Polaris Gem platform. We were, our software was ready to go into more complex environments and operate at higher speed. And so we needed a full-sized, full-strength automotive-grade platform. And the Lexus was a, a great choice. It was a, a vehicle that uh, we, we were able to find a partner to help us with the drive-by-wire system and get these vehicles out into the world, start to generate um, revenue, deliver passengers, learn a whole lot in the process. And that was a massive transformation going from sort of a, a, a internally developed drive-by-wire system to a fully auto-grade platform. 
And we did that incredibly fast in the course of under a year. We made that transformation. And now we are at the cusp of the next transformation, moving to the Sienna platform, which is a vehicle that was designed from the ground up to be an autonomous vehicle. And that's, it's, that sounds like a, uh, a strange thing to say, but if, if you look at the way vehicles have been built, most of them have been retrofits. You buy a vehicle off the lot, you, you get a bunch of smart people and you figure out which wires to cut and where to insert your computers and your ECUs. And, and the, the good thing about this is that you can do it. You can get these vehicles to operate. But it's not the same thing as actually partnering with the OEM who knows this vehicle frontwards and backwards and getting the OEM to give you the keys to the car at, at a low communication, low level of communication. And that's what we are doing now with the, the Sienna platform. This is a platform that Toyota has done special engineering to, to add the redundancy, to add the safety case, and to build this vehicle as one of the world's first natively autonomous ready vehicles. And so this is, this is a, like a, a vehicle that's tailor-made for our, our autonomy kit. We, we slot in, everything just fits. There's no sort of rough edges. And this is a vehicle combination that we'll be able to build in the thousands and to be, be able to operate without safety drivers. If you put it in video game analogy, you went from trying to, to figure out all the shortcuts and the cheat sheet to, to getting the cheat sheet from the video game publisher. So well done on that front. Will Toyota manu manufacture the vehicles for you when you put all your, um, your hardware on there? Will they come off the line factory grade when you get into the thousands? I think my vision here is that we, we are, we're here to grow this company. We are not going to achieve the kinds of transformation of cities. We're not going to get rid of parking lots. We're not going to change the way that uh, you know, people experience cities with a few hundred or a few thousand vehicles. The kind of transformation that we need as a society is going to require millions of vehicles. And it is not practical for May Mobility and our little shop over here to retrofit those vehicles one at a time. Not only is it not scalable, but it's, it's not our expertise. We are not the world's number one builder of quality vehicles. Toyota is. And so my vision here is that we will, we will partner with Toyota to, to get this integrated so that it becomes, we can build these things at the scale, at the quality, so that the total cost of ownership of these vehicles is, is extremely low and gives us a, a huge competitive advantage over other AV companies as well because I think that's what we can achieve. Now, that's my vision. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not announcing anything here, uh, but that is the vision that we are, are aiming towards. It's a healthy vision because if you, if you go back to the 70s and the 80s, Toyota and, and to today has a long track record of building quality vehicles. Not only do they build quality vehicles, they build vehicles that last a long time. Some of the human, they're over 100,000 miles and they're still going strong. Toyota does a great engineering perspective. Staying on the Toyota front, you're starting to... You went from dating, you got married, and then what's the future hold for uh, May and Toyota? We could the relationship continue to grow? Uh, certainly my hope. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that uh, we, we think is really important is that May is an independent company. Toyota is our uh, one of our biggest shareholders, one of our biggest partners. But at the same time, we don't have a contractual, we're not, uh, we're not uh, forced to work together. 
we choose to work together because the opportunities of putting their vehicles and our technology together create so much opportunity. And I think we'll continue to build on this relationship over time. It's obvious from what you said that there's mutual trust. Both sides trust each other. Is that a fair statement? I, I definitely think so. I think our team is has been incredibly impressed by what Toyota has been able to bring to the table. May, you're, you're, as I said earlier, you're doing really good things. Now you're preparing for drive route in 2023. Are you still on track to achieve that goal? We are, yes. So this is a, a big goal for us. Our, our, our goal is to operate our first driver out route uh, at the end of 2023. So that won't be every vehicle. It will be some vehicles. But this is really important to me because I believe it is, it's, it's a matter of, of planting a flag, showing that we can do this too, and being able to scale from there. Now, one of the questions I get a lot is that, hey, you know, hasn't Waymo already operated uh, cars without safety drivers and, and crews too? And the answer is yes. And we, we think that is awesome. We think that it is great that they are validating that what we've been talking about works, that can be done. But we don't think the race is over either. We think that the real race in autonomous vehicles is going to be about scalability. Not whether you can operate in one city, but can you operate in city after city after city after city? Can you go to a completely new city without having to tinker with your software? How fast can you do it? Can you really scale to millions of vehicles? And for this, I think that uh, the race, if this is a baseball game, right, we're, we're at the, the first pitch. There's some interesting activity. It's great and it's exciting, but it's just the very beginning. And I, I, I think May is incredibly well positioned with some of our unique technology to build the tech, to build the vehicles that can scale in that way. And that's what we're aiming for. We don't need to be the first to take the safety driver out, but we can be the first to show that we've got the technology that can go to city after city. I love baseball. and I love the analogy. The pitcher's on the mound. The first pitch is there. We're still not even there. The umpires, they just got the lineup cards. Nothing's really happened. You haven't had any substitutions. We still have a very long way to go. You're going to achieve scalability. You know this and you alluded to it. You need manufacturing. Without the ability to manufacture and the ability to go from city to city to city, you're never going to be able to run a profitable business because as companies IPO, the investors say, okay, what's your next city? How much revenue had? You have to be able to to do those targets. But in order to do that, you have to have really, really good software. May has a unique approach to software. We have a multi-policy decision-making software application. Software is your bread and butter. How do you describe it? Yeah, I, I think maybe the, the way to describe it is to describe what it's not. <laughs> I feel very fortunate to have had a lot of experience in different autonomous vehicle stacks. So May is actually my fourth time building an autonomous vehicle stack. And if you count the the kinds of autonomous vehicles I've worked on that are not cars, it's probably my sixth sixth stack or something like that. And we've learned a lot along the way. The, the first stacks that we built were built in much the way that the entire industry builds stacks. Uh, which is essentially based on rules or experience. There's a couple ways to kind of frame it. But you know, imagine that you are building an autonomous car. The natural thing to do is to tell the, the car how to drive. If there's a pedestrian in the crosswalk, yield. If the traffic light turns yellow, then stop. If the car in front of you is, is uh, stopped and not going anywhere, pass. 
And what you find is that you implement a system like this and it works. It works for a while. And then you start realizing that actually, you know, not always. Sometimes the pedestrian in the crosswalk is actually trying to pass behind the car. And if you yield to the pedestrian when they're trying to wait for you, you're going to hold up traffic. Sometimes when the traffic light turns yellow, there might be a car right behind you. And if you apply the brakes hard, you are inviting a rear end accident. Sometimes when you're behind a car that's going really slowly, you shouldn't pass. Because if you pass by going into the left, left lane, you might miss your, nest, your next uh, right turn. Or you might get too close to an oncoming car. And so what we found is that this, this idea of building a vehicle by encoding in some sort of explicit manner could be literally if-then statements or could be you know, learned from scenarios. It doesn't work. That driving is just this infinitely variable and complex task. And relying on the idea that an autonomous vehicle can draw on its experience, comparing the current situation to situations it's seen before, and consistently come up with the right next action, we've just seen that it doesn't scale. And so it may have taken me four times around, uh, but finally with May Mobility, I, I said, you know, we've got to try something different. And what we brought to the table is this technology that, that's called multi-policy decision-making. And what it really does is it says, we're not going to tell the car how to drive. We're going to give, going to give the car options. You can yield to the pedestrian or you could choose not to yield to the pedestrian. You can brake for the yellow traffic light or go through the traffic light. And the way that we decide, the way that the vehicle decides which of these strategies to pursue is by conducting thought experiments, by thinking through what's going to happen. So while the entire industry uses simulation for validation, we actually use simulation on the car. There's an extremely fast simulator on the car, which is asking these, these what-if questions. What would happen if I passed the car? What would happen if I braked for the yellow light? And we can score all of these different outcomes and decide how to handle the unique one-of-a-kind situation that the car is currently in. And the amazing thing about this is that we know, we, we've measured that this is a more productive, scalable approach. Our company has achieved levels of autonomy uh, that are, are extremely high, competitive with the best AV companies out there. And we've done it with a vastly smaller team. And so the way to view this is that this technology approach is much more scalable. For every dollar that we put into it, we get more autonomy capability out. For every engineer that spends an hour working on something, we get more autonomy capability out. And this is, this is what I'm really excited about. What you, you see this manifest in the way that the vehicle drives, that the vehicle can encounter a situation that our engineers never thought of, the sort of edge case that can derail other vehicles. And our car figures out what to do on its own using the simulation capability. And it, it's, it's a really wonderful thing to be in the car. We get in a weird spot. The engineers in the vehicle are like, uh, I didn't think about this. But the vehicle has that simulation capability and it can essentially figure out how to handle these new situations as it drives. It's really cool. Is all that simulation then being run on, on the edge in the vehicle? It is, yes. 
Uh, and one of the big challenges here is that it has to be. There's not enough time and cellular networks are not reliable enough to, to put this in the cloud. And so this capability has to be in the vehicle, which poses potential power, power problems. But this is something where our technology has, has really been able to, I think, surprise the industry, that our total power footprint is about a sixth that of other companies. So we, our total power consumption is in the neighborhood of 400 watts, which is about the power that you might use if you're playing Xbox on your big TV in your living room. But in the AV space, many AVs are closer to two or three kilowatts, which is you know space heater, multiple space heater territory of power consumption. And this is one of the things that we've really focused on because power consumption is a huge factor for the manufacturability of the vehicles. If you've got a system that consumes more power, first of all, there's probably costs more. Buying a whole bunch of GPUs is really expensive. But then you need more power supplies you, you chew through the, the battery on your electric vehicle faster and you're negatively impacting range. And then you're producing all of this heat, which has to be removed from the vehicle, which might mean bigger air conditioning systems, more fans or more expensive liquid cooling and other packaging systems. All of those things can be done, but all of those things increase the complexity and cost of the vehicle. And they can, they can turn a, a vehicle from a vehicle that can make money to a vehicle that is doomed to lose money. And this is something that we've really focused on. How do we build this technology to be the world's best, scale, most scalable and safest technology, but also one that we can build thousands of in the near future? How were you able to do really intense compute with low energy? Did you develop a special chip architecture? Or how are you doing that? Yeah, our expertise is in the software side. It is absolutely the case that with more specialized hardware, there's more savings to be had. But our main IP here is around how you do this computation in a really efficient way. And all, all the parts of our system are incredibly well-tuned for energy consumption. From the perception system and the computer vision system, we have eight cameras on this vehicle, five LIDARs, five radars, a huge amount of data. And we're processing all of this with very efficient methods that allow us to get great results, but at a fraction of the power of what other companies are are using. You're almost like you're operating the eco-friendly May Mobility Company. <laughs> I, I think there's some truth to that. I think that the the people who the engineers, the talent that we have, is really focused on on solving real problems. I think this is one of the benefits that you get by working with real customers who want to see the thing work. They don't want to see a science project that requires a team of uh, you know, PhD engineers to maintain the, the vehicle. They, they want to get their people from point A to point B. And that turns into real world engineering constraints that you, you can't have a vehicle that, that consumes two and a half kilowatts. It's not practical. You can't have a vehicle where if every time you go over a pothole and you knock your cameras out of calibration that you need to you know, do a new dance around the vehicle with a calibration target to recalibrate it. That's not a, a production system. And, and the, the, this, is, this is the value of working with customers so closely that we, we have customers that are relying on us to deliver transportation every single day. It doesn't matter whether it's raining or it's snowing or the car went over a pothole or whether 
whether we want to push a software update to take down the vehicles for a couple hours while we do it. No, it's got to work. It's got to be ready. People are relying on us. They're outside on the curb right now. It's cold out. Let's go. Let's go give them a ride. And that mentality is, it's 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 constraints. It's a lot of constraints on the engineering, but it is so focusing and energizing. Uh, I think it's really the secret sauce of May. It's healthy because if that individual, the May mobility May mobility vehicle doesn't show up, they don't get to work, and they they lose their job or they get dinged. They're blaming you. And that's going to have a, a negative impact on site. So I, I give you a lot of credit for prioritizing your customers and, and listening to your customers because once May's integrated into their daily habits or the daily life, it becomes part of the routine. They know, okay, every I'm going to get picked up at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday and, and I'll get to work. And it's it's reliable. It's consistent. Instead of saying, oh, building a science project, let's push an update. Oh, the heck with our customers. When you take that mentality the way you're taking it, you will build a very long life of a company a very profitable company because the customers will tell their friends and they'll tell their friends then you get more and more customers and you get a call from another city hey ed please come expand here okay we got another one it's a really valuable lesson that you've learned it, it is it, it's it's a customer first approach having real customers investing their their energy in us depending on us is a huge responsibility uh, but it's also really exciting you know, one of the things that we talk about is, you know, how do we win the battle of the finger? In the future, there will be multiple, I bet I need to explain that metaphor. There will be multiple autonomous vehicle options. And when you pull out your phone, you're going to have a little Waymo icon and a little cruise icon and a little green circle with May inside of it. How do we make sure that that person's finger comes down on the May icon every time? And the way that we do that is to create a better product. One where they know, hey, if I press the, the May icon, the vehicle's going to arrive. It's going to be clean. It's going to drive comfortably. It's going to have a working USB uh, power supply for my laptop. And I'm going to be able to be productive and happy. I want people to see that little green circle pop up to their phone and for them to feel like, yeah, I just got bumped up to first class. Like that feeling you get when you're, you're flying coach and then you get the, the upgrade. That's what I want it to feel like. Uh, because I think we can provide that sort of experience to everybody. And that only by creating a, an experience that is that good can we can we really transform cities. We have to have that sort of level of service and quality for everybody. You want the individual to have a smile when they, when they tap the main mobility button, have a smile on their face. All right, I just got upgraded. Way to go. It's not like you're sitting at the board at the airport. Please upgrade me. Please upgrade me. No, you get that. So putting this all into context, how do you see the autonomous vehicle industry evolving over the next decade? I think what we are seeing right now is a lot of a lot of different market segments sort of developing in parallel. So you've got trucking, you've got logistics in terms of middle mile and last mile. You've got a lot of attention in the ride hail space. And then you've got the transit space where May Mobility lives, which is relatively uncongested. May Mobility is is really the only AV company that has a a great uh, has a lot of momentum in this space. And so I think what you see today is companies sort of slotting themselves in in one of these market segments. Over time, the technology between these market segments isn't all that different. You know, our vehicles could be used in a robo taxi. They could be used in a logistics system. 
And I think what you'll see is that uh, other companies will start to expand the use cases in which they, uh, the use cases that they target. And I think it's going to be really exciting to see how well these technologies scale. Which companies are actually able to go to 100 cities? Which ones are able to then pivot over and start doing logistics with the spare capacity that they have at night or you know during the, the lulls during the day? This is going to be, I think, a, a, the big challenge. The companies that can succeed in this sort of scalability and flexibility are the ones who are going to come out the other side, the 10 years from now, as the winners in the space. And that's that's the the game that we are here to to win. To be a winner, you have to generate revenue. To be a winner, you have to have happy customers. And Ed, putting this conversation into context, what is the future of May Mobility? You know, it sounds corny, but it really is. The thing that I want for May is for us to change cities. So many of the problems that that our society has can be traced at least in part, to transportation that doesn't work effectively. Things, things we, we talked a lot about mobility challenges and people who have mobility, special mobility needs. But pollution, congestion, road safety, uh, you know, the fact that that many of us don't even know who our neighbors are because we we get into our cars in our garage and then we don't talk to anybody in, you know, on our commute in. We just sort of teleport in via this metal box. If we can make our cities more walkable, more bikeable, more friendly, and yes, with cars and buses that are there when you need them, we can really change the way that that people live and experience cities and, and improve the quality of life for everybody in it. That is what I want to achieve. And for May Mobility, there's a, a number of ways that we, we can do this. We, we are looking at future financing rounds, which could take the company public, or keep the company private. Actually, it's not hugely important to me which one. What's important to me is can we fuel this dream? Can we actually do that? And that's that's not just me. That's the entire company. Some of the people who come into our company remark that, you know, May is really a company of missionaries, not mercenaries. Everyone here has an offer from our competitors in their inbox right now, every single person. So the question that I keep asking myself is, why do they come to May? Why are they still here? And it's really important that we ask ourselves that question. And the answer that we get is because this is the vision that they have too, that they want to contribute to a company that is going to have a massively positive impact on the world. And so that's, that's, that's the company that we've built, uh, and that's what we're going to do. It's a noble mission, Ed. Stay on your mission. You're doing really well. And as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? You know, I think uh, the, the number one thing is, is to recognize the importance of transportation. That the, the potential transformative power of public transit is, is enormous. And the technology is at, at our doorstep. And we're going to be pushing hard to do this in a safe and responsible way. But the, the, this is a time for great optimism about what the future is going to look like. Our, our kids may know cities in a radically different way. And this will start as, as being able to get to work in a reliable way, knowing that when you want to go out for dinner, that your, 
the vehicle is going to arrive within, you know, two minutes of its estimated time. Those sorts of, you know, quality of life improvements, very important, very tangible. But where it goes is even bigger. It It's going towards a fundamental physical transformation of our cities, changing the way that our cities are built, changing the ways that we use land, and changing the way that we live in cities and think about our neighbors and think about walking to school and going to the grocery store. This has massive environmental impacts, social impacts, and it's all coming. And it's it's an amazing thing for for a, a geeky, nerdy roboticist to to recognize that the the technology that I've been working on for the last 15 years might just be a really important piece of that puzzle. It is an important piece of that puzzle because the world is changing, but the world is also healthy. And, and one day, perhaps, we'll go out there, hello, Mr. Neighbor, hello, Mrs. Neighbor, because your technology is going to allow that to happen. Because today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. The future is May Mobility. Ed, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week when I speak with educators from Phoenix's Suvia Elementary School West. They will share their experience with the SAE Foundation's A World of Motion, and we'll talk with two of their students who participated in the program. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.